0: Hi, this is David Rutledge with you for The Philosopher's Zone once again. Welcome to the program. We're talking about art this week and the ethics of the artwork because art isn't some sort of static phenomenon and works of art don't just exist passively in galleries or installation spaces or public squares. Today we're exploring the notion that art can say things and it can do things and it can mean different things from one set of historical circumstances to the next. And the things that art says and does and means are not always benign or harmless. And from time to time, we have to think about how we should respond to morally problematic art. Well, I'm talking about all of this with Daisy Dixon, who's a philosopher and an artist and a research fellow at the University of Cambridge. Daisy Dixon's work takes place at the intersection of philosophy of art and philosophy of language and political philosophy, and she's particularly interested in the question of how art can function as hate speech, and we'll be getting onto that in a minute. But Daisy and I began this conversation with a discussion about the relationship between art and philosophy, and what can happen when an artist tries to do philosophy through art.
1: Often, as a young art student, I would often try and illustrate a philosophical theory through a particular sculpture or painting or something like that and the art ended up just being a bit crap it just was a bit illustrative reductive it was like well we've got this I mean I think I was trying to illustrate a, a Descartes kind of um I think therefore I am kind of theory of the self and the relation between the self and the world and I made a, this sculpture of two little, like a few little black spheres. And they were just sitting there and it was like, well, the art is a bit boring. And, you know, the interesting thing is the theory. So what is the art actually doing? It sort of became dispensable. So I learned that the best way actually is to forget about the philosophy when making art and actually just embodying yourself and just really immersing yourself with the medium that you're experimenting with and just go with the process. Keep failing, keep experimenting. Don't worry too much about what the art is trying to say necessarily.
0: What about the way that you do philosophy then? How is that informed by your art practice?
1: Um yeah, so while my art I allow to be a bit more free from philosophy, my philosophical work is far more informed by my art practice. And just my experience working with artists and curators, mainly because that's almost like being on the front line, um, working with the, within the phenomena that I'm trying to philosophize about. And philosophers often try to reflect um, intuitive opinion or the layperson's opinion about something. So the philosophers don't want to sort of necessarily make something overly obscure, they want to really capture what is actually going on. So being an artist, that has influenced my views about certain um, theories in aesthetics. So for example, how much the artist's intention determines artwork meaning. Having been an artist and having had people actually interpret my work in ways that I didn't intend and me actually really enjoying that, that, that very much uh, affected my Opinion about philosophically what's going on, about how much authority the artist has over what the artwork actually means and does, and actually they are part of the artwork. So I still felt like people ought to listen to what my intention was for the artwork, but that intention, by no means, is the last say on what the artwork means. So that's just what it is, and also the importance of curation, which I also work on, because. um, I worked, I also have curated and I worked with curators all the time at art school and I just thought the curator has such a philosophically significant role and generally in philosophy they tend to be overlooked.
0: Yeah, yeah. Curation I think is really interesting and something I'd like to come back to. But one thing about philosophy of of perhaps more analytic kind is that it's often an exercise in trying to get to the essence of something to, you know, strip away all the cultural, historical accretions and sort of arrive at the thing itself. When it comes to art though, that seems like a huge challenge given that the nature of art is so historically and culturally coded. So with all that in mind, what do you think about that question? Just what is art? You know, is that the wrong question for philosophy to be asking or is it just a very difficult question that, that is still worth exploring?
1: Yeah, um, so I enjoy teaching this topic, uh, the definitional project, but I never go near it in my own work. And for a while, it's because I thought, well, I don't, especially being involved in the art world, we sort of know what it is, this thing that is an artwork. Do we really need to keep coming to this sort of contained perfect definition? Like what's the point in that? But actually my views about that have sort of changed because before the turn of the 20th century, the idea of what art was, was a bit more stable, at least in the West. But of course, that was socially encoded by class and also gender and race, because, for example, women would be seen to make craft, never high art. So obviously that view is changing. So the definitional project has, I think, encoded quite poorly what an artwork is. And I think it's perpetuated injustices around the art world as well, because if you encode in your definition of art, what is art, and that's sort of gendered or racial, then you're kind of automatically excluding people who can be artists, which is ridiculous. So it has caused some harm, but I do think that with the turn of the 20th century, with the rise of conceptual art, that definitely made trying to define art interesting because art suddenly, with early conceptual art, with Duchamp's Urinal, for example, when art sort of became reflexive and self-aware, started to think, well, what am I kind of thing? That, I think, became philosophically interesting to challenge philosophers saying, well, what is art? I do think it's still a worthwhile project because people do care quite strongly about what an artwork is. They often get quite angry about the art world now. So especially how much money artworks go for and people get very angry even now. I mean, I remember when Tracey Emin's bed was exhibited, people were still so angry about why that was an artwork. It's just a dirty bed, they thought, or it's just a pile of bricks or it's just an artist excrement and a can like why is this art so people do care about it so I think at least with philosophers they can help illuminate why these very strange objects are actually art and that might help soothe or um, appease some people who feel kind of affronted by these strange objects claiming to be artwork so I still think there's work to be worthwhile work to be done on
0: that you have a, an interest in the way that art can function as hate speech and how we might respond to that. And there's a connection there with your work in the philosophy of language. So maybe let's get to it by beginning with that connection, the ways that art can say things and, and through that saying it can do things. Can you draw that out for us?
1: Yeah. So in my PhD thesis, I was drawn to speech act theory, specifically Austin's speech act theory in the late 50s and 60s. And, you know, this wasn't a brand new idea, but he was a philosopher who kind of uh, systematically presented a theory of what a speech act actually is. And he observed that when we communicate to each other, we're not just uttering sentences and expressing propositions. So right now, I'm just sort of saying sentences to you. But in uttering those sentences, what he called a Locutionary act, we do things. But there are certain actions. There are things we do. We do in saying something. So, if you ask me, "Can you mow my lawn?" and I say no, I've said the word no. But what have I actually done with that locutionary act? I've refused. So it const- it has got a certain illocutionary force, is what he calls it. I've refused, and after that illocutionary act, there's going to be certain effects. Um, of what I've said. So you might be pissed off or you might feel hurt that I have refused. they kind of tend to be extra linguistic effects of the speech act I've performed, like refusal or acceptance, whatever it might be. And uh, JL Austin looked at how what's actually going on with how we perform those speech acts, like what conditions have to hold for certain speech acts to come about. Some of them are more formal. So to Chris in a ship. I have to have a certain kind of authority, I might have to do a certain action with a, a champagne bottle, and I might have to utter a very particular sentence for that speech act to come off. And I basically would take those conditions and look at how visual artworks, even without words, can also perform those speech acts. Certain speech acts were, would jump out quite often, like assertion or protest or criticism or something, especially with political art. And I basically look at how, uh, in the linguistic case, we are using words to do things. And Austin would say, you know, we can also perform illocutionary acts without words. So if I hurl a tomato at a politician, that might be an act of protest. I've not actually said anything. So I looked at that kind of those non-verbal means of performing those speech acts, looking at how paintings, for example, can be a kind of conventional locutionary act in itself, with the intention of the artist behind it, like a speaker. Um, so the painting is kind of like an utterance. And then you have your audience, you need to kind of understand what you're doing with your words to uh, for uptake to occur, what Austin called uptake. So there's lots of um, speech act theories is flourishing at the moment in, in philosophy of language, um, and political and ethical uh, dimensions of that. Um, so there's still a lot of disagreement about particularly the role of uptake, but I basically look at how a similar model can be applied to visual artworks as well.
0: And, and so what about hate speech in particular? How how can art function as hate speech?
1: Yeah, so if artworks can perform, if they can indeed perform uh, more standard Ill- illocutionary acts, then of course we can ask, can they perform oppressive speech acts that we find in ordinary hate speech? So racist sexist homophobic islamophobic language that we might use they can often constitute speech acts of subordination so by saying a racial slur that in a certain context said by a certain person can constitute an act of subordination and so equally i think artworks can also perform these oppressive speech acts again by um the kind of again this rough visible locution so what aesthetic conventions the artwork's using. So one convention might be making a particular figure very large in the composition. That's an aesthetic convention that signals that they have the most power. So if you put like a white kind of Britannia at the top of a painting and a person with darker skin beneath them, that's a very clear aesthetic convention of who is in power and how it ought to be. But then you've also got the uptake of the audience as well, what they interpret the speech act to be.
0: You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone on ABCRN with me, David Rutledge, and my guest, Daisy Dixon, who's an artist and research fellow in the philosophy of art at the University of Cambridge. talk more about this question of how art can function as hate speech, or or how it can constitute a kind of damaging speech act, and how we might deal with this kind of art, particularly public art, where the nature of the speech act and the appropriate response to it becomes publicly contested. You've written about the case of the statue of Edward Colston in the city of Bristol, which was at the centre of a, a very interesting protest a couple of years ago. So, uh, to get us into it, just tell us the story there. First of all, who was Edward Colston and what happened to his statue?
1: Yeah, so Edward Colston was um, a slave trader in the late 17th and early 18th century. Um, but he was also a philanthropist. So he, through his work in the slave trade, he um, generated a lot of income and money for Bristol uh, in particular. And I think in the later, I think it was 19th century. They installed this memorial or commemorative statue of Edward Colston in one of the squares. And during the Black Lives Matter protest, there sort of was the peak of this ongoing debate before the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests about whether they should mention the fact that this philanthropist they were commemorating was also a slave trader. And during the protest, people became more and more aware of who this person was. And they started kind of circling the statue and sort of throwing various things at it. And the protest kind of moved around it kind of as a focal point. And then, I don't know if this was pre-planned, but they started to pull it down. And amazingly, they managed to pull it off its plinth. By this point, it was covered in spray paint, graffiti. They then rolled it through the streets and it had this incredible kind of sonic properties, just like clanking and scraping. And then they pushed it into Bristol Harbour. Then quite quickly it was retrieved and then it was put in one of the museums in Bristol. Um, I wish they'd sort of left it in the water. I think that would have been a cool, like, art installation or something.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to talk about here. I mean, I I agree it would have been a really cool installation, but it would also am I right in thinking it would also be an example of what you have described as artistic counter-speech? Because we, we also want to talk about, you know, w- what are the better and worse ways of dealing with art that notionally constitutes hate speech? So pushing it into the water, I mean, it just seems like a very um, crude form of protest, but mm. maybe it's sort of more interesting than that it, as an example of artistic counter-speech.
1: Yeah, so this idea of artistic counter-speech is, is one that I've developed recently, uh, modelling it on Ray Langton's, um, and, and various other theorists, I should say, notion of counter-speech in a way to deactivate harmful speech acts. Now, Ray Langton offers different ideas of what she calls blocking. So if I say, even George could win, um, Like, what do you, hang on a minute, what do you mean even George? Like, what's wrong with George? So what you're doing there is you're spotlighting this presupposition, which is that George is inferior, which is a subordinative speech act. And by spotlighting it, and then you might block it be like, no, I don't think that's fair. Then you'll kind of prevent, if that presupposition isn't allowed to go through in the conversation, then that speech act kind of gets derailed. So that's what happens in kind of everyday conversation. And I look at how there are aesthetic equivalents of that. So... With a commemorative statue, literally by pushing it down, it's just a very visceral rejection of like, hang on a minute, like what do you mean that it's okay to kind of commemorate someone who was a slave trader? Like I, I reject this kind of implicit speech act as being done. And especially by rolling it through the streets, it was a kind of aesthetic, like who do you think you are? So what you're doing is you're kind of robbing that artwork of, its, of the authority behind it. The artwork, the Colston statue was actually huge. It was very dominant in the public square. It was looking down as well. I mean, it was a very like classic aesthetic convention of this power, This person has power over you. And Sadiq Khan at the time, Mayor of London, said, can you imagine being a black person and walking past that every day, knowing that this person enslaved your ancestors? Like, I mean, how, could, how would that make you feel? So to literally bring it in, bring the sculpture down is just a very easy way of just saying, I reject this authority that this person has over me and my community. So this is all a form of counter-speech by kind of blocking those those presupposed contents that the sculpture was originally making. And then what was interesting is when they reinstalled it in the Bristol Museum, they laid it on its side. They did clean it off a bit, but they left a lot of some of the graffiti on it. And I think laying it on its side was really effective, simple but effective solution to it, because they easily could have just installed it upright again. But laying it on its side, I think, was a remnant of what had been done to it. And because of the counter speech, because of that blocking, you've deactivated those original speech acts that the sculpture was making. So the Colston statue lying on its side it's no longer commemorating a slave trader or being a an, an subordinative speech act in virtue of that. It's now a protest artwork. It's now a protest. It's become an anti racist protest artwork. So, what it's doing is actually changed. And philosophically, that's very interesting because historically, a lot of philosophers think that artworks can't change in meaning. A lot of people disagree with that anyway. I try to show that artworks can change in meaning, but philosophically, it's a bit tricky to show. But on speech act theory, this might be a way in to show that you can actually transform what an artwork does in the first place.
0: This is really interesting because, of course, the statue still exists. I mean, it's there in a museum. But as you say, it has changed in some sort of fundamental way. Is this what you are getting at when you write about the the metaphysical destruction of a work of art? It doesn't physically destroy it, but it destroys some part of it or turns part of it into something else.
1: Yeah, precisely. So, Of course, there are lots of different uh, strategies or solutions, proposed solutions to deal with um, problematic or dangerous artworks. Some of these might be just simple censorship where you just remove the artwork. Some might be, you know, iconoclastic, just, just destroy it. And these can have, you know, especially with public art, these can still be very effective. But there's this more, you know, this more subtle way, which, you know, perhaps on the ground, a lot of people might think that metaphysical destruction is a bit anodyne, a bit weak. Um, it's just a philosophically interesting thing. But I think it's, it's more than that because basically what's happening is you have, you, you preserve the material of the artwork. So as you say, the kind of physical thing is still there. And that might be a good thing for people who think that we should keep these objects because they're a reminder of our history. The problem with censorship is if you just remove problematic art, you're just going to be removing history. Now, when I say removing history, I don't mean erasing history in the way that some people in the debate think it is. By keeping the artwork there, but interacting with it, changing it a bit, if it's just a, curator- a re-curation, re that can really highlight that artwork. and Because I didn't know who Edward Colston was before the protests. Didn't know who he was. By the artistic counter-speech that happened in the protests, that really kind of made people far more aware of who this person was. So actually it was highlighting the real history of what was going on.
0: But then what about artworks that have immense cultural prestige and and monetary value, right? More than a statue in a town square would have. Because if we think of something like the paintings of Paul Gauguin, who was a known sexual predator and many of his paintings feature girls of 13 and 14 who he sexually abused – And those paintings are sitting there on the walls of some of the most prestigious art museums and galleries in the world, right? Nobody's going to take them outside and drag them through the streets. And curators of a Gauguin exhibition can choose to include some kind of information there about the artist's crimes. But at the end of the day, the painting is still there on the wall and it's still worth millions of dollars and it it still stands as a, a pinnacle of Western art. How can these strategies of metaphysical destruction that you're talking about compete with that sort of cultural power?
1: I think part of the problem, and I do think this is changing, part of the problem is that so many people don't know about Gauguin's past and what he actually, what those paintings, the the paintings he became famous for in Tahiti, what those paintings are actually of, his child brides. And I think curators can definitely they've only really just started recently doing this in the last um, few years, actually replacing labels that said, like describing what the artwork was from a young woman to a 13-year-old girl. And I think just that kind of language, if that becomes more, um, not just in curation, but also digitally and um, virtually when people interact with the artwork, if that's on Wikipedia or through TV or whatever it might be, we have to be careful with our language and how we describe those artworks and that can be a kind of aesthetic spotlighting that I mentioned before by saying like we actually expose what the artwork is presupposing or the speech acts it's performing so in this case it's kind of like eroticizing sexual violence if we actually spotlight that and actually say what it is then that will I think change people's aesthetic experience of those paintings so now, when I look at his paintings, I feel disgust, whereas before I actually thought they were quite beautiful. And now that beauty has become complex. And now it just is mainly dominated by disgust and anger. So I think you can, the curators, even with those subtle changes on the wall, they can change people's perceptions of those artworks, even if they're not taking them down. And unfortunately, I think that might be a quite of a slow process. And it might be, ideally, that we stop having retrospectives of people like Gauguin that have been done again and again and again, and actually just show art by underrepresented groups, um, women of the same period, and have more and more shows like that. So that's what um, Maura Riley, a curator, she calls curatorial activism. One solution is to stop giving these particular men a platform, which they've had for so long, and just change the platform a bit. So that's not destroying the artworks, it's not rolling them through the streets or whatever, which, as you say, will be quite tricky um, with museum pieces. But those more subtle recontextualizing with the labels, but also just curatorially tell a better story.
0: It gets to this question, though, that I think is really interesting about the prestige conferred by the museum or the gallery space, the fact that the work attracts the attention of curators in the first place. And if we get back to the statue of Edward Colston, placed in the City Museum, and of course, the the statue hasn't been repaired, it's still in what you might call its, its disgraced condition. But I wonder if you think that there's something about its being displayed in the museum in the first place that seems like they don't quite get the point. You know, if the point is that this privileged artefact had been dethroned and claimed by the people and now it's being taken away from the people again in a sense by the civic establishment, you know, it's very difficult to display something in a museum in any state that that doesn't in some way give it that a, a gloss of reverence of some kind. What, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, I agree with you. That it, I mean, again, going back to what I said, I would prefer to have happened is they either would have left the statue underwater, because underwater art is cool, or like a memorial to his, as you say, eventual dethroning, but all they could have uh, retrieved it and laid it on its side back in the square or something like that. There's so many different things they could have done with it, keeping it in its original public space and as you say allowing the people to sort of really take it back and make it their own i think that would have been aesthetically more interesting for sure and i agree with you i think putting it into museums kind of turned it into this stuffy object that's now just this another archived thing but on the other hand museum spaces are changing for the better and now with repatriation arguments becoming more and more persuasive and articulately uh, given by various uh, historians and philosophers as to why repatriation is um, crucial. Museum spaces are becoming more self-aware, more critical. And I think that the, uh, I'll have to check this, is the museum in Washington, I think it's the uh, Museum of African American History. I think it's that's not the, quite the name of it, I'll have to double check. But they, they basically tell the story of the slave trade and sort of black history all the way through uh, to the civil rights movement. But the way they've curated the space is so beautifully done and so, so sensitively done. Um, so they even have trigger warnings on some of the images uh, marked by red frames. So you, you see a red frame and like, I don't think I want to look at that. And when they do the uh, passage, the transatlantic passage part of the history, they've made it very dark and narrow. So museum spaces are becoming these artistic spaces where they present archived objects and history, but through a, an immersive aesthetic experience. And I think museums do have the power actually to become more artistic in that sense. So the very least, putting the Colson statue on its side back in a museum, maybe that's an attempt to shake up that museum space as well.
0: Daisy Dixon, Research Fellow in Philosophy and Art at the University of Cambridge. And her website is well worth checking out because, among other things, Daisy is a sound artist and she's got some great clips of various sound installations there, as well as links to philosophy publications. Very interesting work overall and we'll put the info on our website. This is the Philosopher's Zone. You can find us via ABCRN. Follow us via the ABC Listen app. And you can find me, David Rutledge, on Twitter at DavidPZone. I hope you can join me next time. Bye for now.